Welcome to Faith Foundations with Open the Word with Circle of Friends podcast. I'm your host, Gwen McCaslin, for this discipleship series. We are doing the last couple books of Old Testament survey, uh, the last few minor prophets. And these, along with Haggai, are considered um, post-exile books. Um, so in other words, what that means is the, the some of the nation of Israel has been allowed to come home. Um, and they've come home to desolation, and so they're rebuilding. Um, and so there's this this uh, clear goal of bringing back what has been destroyed. And so today we are going to focus on the book of Zechariah. Uh, last week we covered Haggai, and next week we will cover the Italian prophet Malachi, or sorry, Malachi. Um, but I had a college ministry leader, um, Joe Megalette out of Ashland, who dearly loved that man and his wife. Um, but he called it the Italian prophet Malachi. And if you knew Joe, man, you just, you'll never get that out of your head. Anyway. Uh, all right. So on today, we are looking at Zachariah. We're going to talk a little bit about who Zachariah is. Prophecy and hope is what this book is. Um, and this is the the nation of Judah or the southern kingdom. And at this point, what you need to understand is that the northern kingdom no longer exists and it will not exist again. And so Judah is all that's left. And so we're looking at 520 BC to maybe 518 BC. So we've got a pretty, pretty accurate timeline on this one within two years. And so the why of this book is to give hope to the remnant. Um, and okay, so what's a remnant? Uh, a remnant, a lot of times, is what we call a leftover piece of a garment. Um, it's a piece of fabric that's kind of left over. So, in this use of it, uh, it is the people that uh, scraggle, straggle back home. And so, it's the leftovers. It's it's compared to the amount that were carted off to Babylon. It's a small portion of people that. Um, have come back home and have met with the ones that have managed to survive um, and continue to exist in Jerusalem. And that's not many because Jerusalem truly was left in awful, uh, awful situation and circumstances. There literally was incredible extreme poverty. And basically they sacked Jerusalem to such an extent that it would never be a concern for them again. That's what Babylon did. Um, And so basically it was revenge for the leader that had been appointed got too big for his britches so to speak, Gwen speak, but he had kind of mounted a coup and tried to fight back. And so Babylon came in the second time and just decimated everything and basically took anybody who was able to make the journey. Um, they took them uh, and so thoroughly pillaged. And so remember the first time they went in, they took the best, the smartest, the brightest, the most talented, the who's who of Israel. The second time they weren't picky. Uh, they just came in, they slaughtered, they killed, they pillaged, they took. So they basically left it so that they wouldn't be able to ever rebel again is what happened. So that's what the remnant comes back to is if, and then you have to realize there was like 50 to 60 years of just neglect. Like nobody's done anything. Nobody's fixed roads. Nobody's, you know, nobody's cleared rubble. Nobody's cleared. So imagine the worst parts of Ukraine right now. And that have been hit the hardest by Russian troops. And imagine that that has sat for 50 years, untouched. 
and that would be close to what they're coming back to. Um, and so you can you can imagine the struggle. Um, and so what we saw in Haggai is that the people are being confronted that they have um, they have lost their heart to rebuild God's house. And so he, he basically God confronts them and says, "Hey, um, you're building yourself nice houses. What? There's some priorities that need to shift here." Um, and so he uh, he basically admonishes them to put first things first um, and to put him God. Yahweh first in their lives. So that's the book of Haggai and Zechariah. Um, we have hope being given to the remnant. And you had a little bit of that in the last chapter of Haggai. You had kind of the image of God dwelling in their midst. And we talked in the last episode about how important that would have been to the nation of Israel. Um, all right. So in Zechariah, we actually have um, 14 chapters with the book of Zechariah, so it is a little bit lengthier of the minor prophets. But uh, the biggest thing I, is basically there's two different divisions to this. Okay, chapters 1 through 8 are Zechariah's visions, the visions that God has given him. And sometimes with the prophet, they're given a message and a word. Sometimes they're asked to act out things. Um, we saw that a little bit in Jeremiah. You know, he was told to go down to the Valley of Dry Bones. He was told to go to the potter's house, so on and so forth. In one of the others, he was told to lay on his side for an entire year. I mean, there's just weird things sometimes. Um, you, you, you have Hosea, who was called to marry a woman who literally was the daughter of a prostitute. So she was in prostitution as well. Um, and so we have kind of God speaking differently a little bit. But um, for Zechariah, he had visions that God would give him. And if if you want to consider it this way, Daniel had visions. There were a lot of visions that God gave to Daniel. Uh, so chapters 1 through 8 are Zechariah's visions. Chapters 9 through 14 are kind of oracles or messages against the nations. And so you kind of have a half and half in the book of Zechariah. So it's important when you're reading to kind of recognize which part you're in to kind of understand better of what's going on in the book. Understanding the structure will also be important when we get to the epistles in the New Testament because they most of Paul's epistles are divided in half as well. And so they have a very clear structure to them because Paul's organized and he's a structure guy and he's good at that. <clears throat> some of us are not, but <laughs> some of us are. Um, okay, so we've done our outline and then key verse. Um, the key verse of this one is Zechariah 9.9. Um, so it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Now that should sound familiar because we had some of that in Haggai, right? Shout, daughter of Jerusalem, see your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, Zechariah 9.9. Now for some of you who know the New Testament, that should sound really familiar, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Here's the thing you need to know for context, full scripture. If a king comes on a horse, he's coming for war. So anytime you see a king on a horse, it's war scenario. When he comes on a donkey, he's coming in peace. 
So there is significance even to how Jesus comes back into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. He comes back riding a donkey. He comes back as the king of peace. And so that right there is very important. Um, There's a lot of connections for this. Like, for example, uh, you know, the, uh, the story of... Um, Melchizedek, how we see Melchizedek. Um, Melchizedek is the king of Salem, which would have been Jerusalem, (laughs) what we come to know as Jerusalem. And so he is the king of Salem. Well, another word for Salem is peace, the king of peace. And so he was a prophet and a king, both, a priest and a king, sorry. He was a priest and a king. Um, The only other king that was also a priest is Jesus. And he is a prophet, priest, and king. Um, And so when he comes into Jerusalem riding a donkey, right here in Zechariah 9.9, we literally have that prophesied in 520 to 518 BC. Okay, now Jesus doesn't do that until roughly about 32-33 A.D., So we're looking at about 550 years before Jesus comes back in that it's right here in Scripture. Um, What I want you to understand is that the beauty of the Old and the New Testament is that there are hundreds of prophecies that Jesus fulfills in his lifetime. There are more that will be fulfilled at his second coming. Uh, I learned the other day, I was listening to something, and I can't remember what, or I give you the source, but um, they were talking about the Dead Sea Scrolls, and specifically the book of Daniel, and that Bible scholars had really struggled with the accuracy of when Daniel would have been written, because they just couldn't bring themselves to understand that God, that that book could have been authored at the time it was supposed to be authored. And so they really, they hadn't found any portions of Daniel up to that point back that far. So there was no way it could have been written that late. So they were dating Daniel being written far, far more recent. Okay. And so when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, In that, they know exactly when those scrolls were put in those tombs, in those caves, okay? And so they know the date of when they were put in there. And there is an entire complete copy of the book of Daniel. And so that predates by tons of years when they were crediting it as having been written. So it is just amazing because one of the things that Daniel contains is the statue Um, imagery that talks about this kingdom will come after this one and it'll come after this one and this one will come after this one. And we can clearly see in that, uh, uh, sorry, I'm losing the name of it, in that um, vision that Daniel is given, we can clearly identify the Persian Empire, the the Greek Empire, and the Roman Empire by very specific details that are in Daniel's vision. And so, honestly, um, the Dead Sea Scrolls gave so much to the authenticity of Scripture that I don't think we will ever fully know outside of the world of academia how much credit and how much it has debunked the skeptics 
of the word of God. Um, but I just thought that was such a validation for God's word and its authority. Um, and the fact that it is divinely inspired, that it is God breathed. Um, and that purely he uses men like pens to write what he wants written. Anyway, um, so I was I was really encouraged this week to kind of find out that little detail. I hadn't known that before. And so hopefully you guys enjoyed that little tidbit too. All right, so let's dive in a little bit to a couple of places in uh, the book of Zechariah, okay? To kind of just, I guess, um, telescope a little bit into some of these chapters. Um, chapters 1 through 8, there's a couple of things I guess I'll... Um, an example of one of his his visions, mm, chapter 3 is a good example. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Um, and the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. And indeed the Lord who has chosen Israel, Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed in filthy garments and standing before the angel. And he, the angel, spoke and said to those who were standing, um, so the other angels before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. And again he said, See, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with festival robes or costly and splendid robes. Then I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, while the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways, and if you will perform my service, then you will also govern my house and have charge of my courts. And I will grant you free access among those these who are standing here. Um, and so that's just kind of an image of like the visions that he saw. Um, you know, in chapter four, we've got a golden lampstand and olive trees. And the interesting thing is olive trees, the two olive trees, when you see in Old Testament, two olive trees, um, a lot of times it's in the context of uh, end times, the end times or the day of the Lord. Um, and that mirrors in Revelation the two witnesses that testify for the entire first three and a half years. Um, they're referred to as the two olive trees in heaven. And so the interesting thing in studying Revelation is you get all of these pieces from the Old Testament that are reflected and given clear meaning um, in some of the things. So uh, here's the thing. God's word is one consistent story from start to finish. It is one consistent book. And so if you don't see scripture that way, you're going to have a hard time understanding a portion of it because that portion fits in the context of the whole. Um, and so one of the things I have loved about a precepts Bible study is that K. Arthur really truly teaches you in a way that helps you understand that the Old Testament and the New Testament fit together like one consistent book. And because God is the author of it all. And so it's very consistent from Old Testament to New Testament when you get to looking at it. Um, and so, you know, one thing I want to point out from what I read about the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at the right hand to accuse him. Okay, 
the interesting thing is in studying Revelation, I've come to understand that like Satan has access to both heaven the air, and to earth. He's got access to all of it right now. And back in the garden, we gave him access to the kingdom when we listened to him. That literally gave him the domain that God had given mankind. So when Adam and Eve chose to submit to his lies and his um, deception, literally, it gave him, we became slaves to sin. And he literally slaves to him ultimately. And so it that it was at that point that he got the domain of earth from us. And so the interesting thing is he is day and night before the throne of grace accusing the brethren. So we know that. But we also know that he is on the earth prowling around like a lion seeking whom he can devour. So there's scriptural evidence for him to be able to be in both places. And then we have passages like um, Job, where it talks about, it came about the time that Satan and his angels were in heaven, you know, and so it almost seems like there's moments where Satan comes for like this big meeting in heaven or something. It's just interesting. But to understand that he has freedom right now to go back and forth between both places. But at some point in future times, from what I'm studying in Revelations, it clearly says that he's kicked out of heaven. And he is no longer allowed to be in heaven. And so he's literally cast to earth at that point. And so from going from being able to go back and forth from both places to at some point in in the tribulation being literally cast down to earth, you can imagine the intensity of demonic activity on the earth at that point. And so that's one of the things that I have gleaned from this study of Revelations is that I've never realized that at some point Satan is going to be confined to earth, literally. And so the the amount of evil is just going to amp and skyrocket like we can't even imagine. Anyway, so that's one of the fun little tidbits we've picked up from studying Revelation over the last year and a half. Um, So anyway, I hope that's kind of fascinating for you and you're welcome to to message me if you want the verse and chapters on those, and I can get those for you. But um, it's just really, it's fascinating to let Scripture be clear on what it's clear on and allow it to cloak what it cloaks. And then as you read in other places, to be able to put it on the timeline and allow it to just clarify things. And so that's been kind of fun to sit with this timeline and, okay, this has been pretty clear, the timing on this. This has been pretty clear, but we don't quite, with what we've studied so far, we're still all waiting to figure out when the rapture happens. Anyway, um, and what scripture actually says about that. So it's been kind of fun. It's like we're on a treasure hunt, so to speak, um, along the way. And so we're looking at passages out of Matthew, like 24, chapter 24 and 25, where Jesus is talking to his disciples about the end times. Um, And so it's been kind of fun to look at what Jesus actually says in those moments and where it fits with the timeline that we've built out of Revelation. Um, And so to kind of hang the pieces that are clearly at certain moments. And so it's been kind of fun to do that because it takes all of these places where the end times are talked about and it blends them together in the timeline. Um, where where things go and, you know, where they aren't and where, you know. And so actually what's 
what used to be so muddled and confusing is honestly kind of starting to flow and, oh, okay, well, that's pretty clear. Okay. Um, And so it's interesting because when you get to the book of Ezekiel, there's this imagery of these four creatures coming out of heaven. Well, when you've studied Revelation, you know exactly what that is because the four, three creatures that are around the throne. And so you can see how they're talked about in Ezekiel's vision versus how they're talked about. And you can add the details together for a bigger picture. And so it's beautiful to be able to do that. And so that's what happens when you study God's word is you're able to kind of put together the big picture of what's going on anyway. um, And when you study and discover stuff for yourself, you hold it differently with a different confidence, with um, a different, um, what word do I want? Uh, it sticks with you differently. Um, and then if you go to attempt to teach it to somebody else, um, it sticks a little bit better even. And so, you know, my encouragement for you guys is instead of going to the quick source to figure things out um, and trusting that a human's gotten it right, spend some time digging and ask the Lord to teach you and see what you can find. And then go look at what the different opinions are on things and see if you came up with something that sounds like somebody else's thoughts on things. So instead of running to those those uh, commentaries right away, try to see if you can figure out what's in a passage. Make a list. Make an observation of the passage. See if you can can figure out what's going on. Ask some of the questions about what the audience would have been going through at the time, what their main concerns would have been, what God's main message to the people would have been. You know, the life of the person writing and how that is shows up in the book. Things like that. Anyway, um, hopefully what I encourage in you guys is a curiosity and a love for the word. Um, and understanding that scripture is living and active, um, and that God is the same in the Old Testament as he is in the New, uh, and that Jesus fulfills the covenant made to the nation of Israel. Um, And so in Jesus, we have fulfillment of that covenant, and we have a new one established in his blood that extends to us that are outside of the nation of Israel. We have been grafted in. Um, And so there's no longer this distinction between Jew and Gentile, uh, slave or free. We are all one in Christ. That is the beautiful thing. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are co-heirs with Christ, um, seated in heavenly places with him. And so it's, it's literally his righteousness that clothes us. And so when Jesus went to the cross, he literally became sin for us. Um, and he knew no sin of his own. So literally, he became the thing that God hated the most, that God's wrath was directed at. And so literally, <laughs> he satisfied the wrath of the most holy God in his sacrifice. So he laid down all of the benefits of of being fully divine and surrendered to humanity so that he was uniquely qualified to take our place. I mean, literally that sacrifice, (laughs) yeah, that sacrifice in order for it to be a sacrifice that could be one time and last forever and reach backwards and forwards in time, it had to be very specific in what it was. And he didn't 
stay dead. He conquered sin and death with his resurrection. And so that is the power of the gospel, that Jesus has, Jesus's blood literally washes away our sin. Um, And so our sin is removed from us as far as the east is from the west. And God no longer deals with us according to our sin. That is the gospel, that once we have put our faith in Christ, once we have chosen to follow Jesus, and trust me, there is a cost to this, so it is not a light decision that is made easily, because we are told very clearly in Scripture that the world hates him, and that we will be hated because of him. And so honestly, the entire New Testament, the main message of that is that following Christ is picking up your cross and following after him, that it is dying to self, that it is facing persecution. And so a lot of times I think we communicate that just come to Jesus, he fixes everything, you'll be happy and sassy and wealthy and wise and and everything will be just perfect. And that is a lie. That is a lie. And if you believe that, your faith is going to fall apart on you the moment that you hit persecution and trouble and hardship. That is not the gospel. The gospel is that following Christ comes at a profound cost sometimes. And I think believers around the world know this. You know, when your family is looking at you going, you follow this Jesus and, and we're going to kill you. You know, it's a little bit hard to believe that everything's going to go well after you you literally choose to follow Christ. Um, and so in, in a lot of countries, they understand that literally the baptism is this image of dying to what is behind, um, being buried with Christ. And then as you come out of the water, you're being resurrected to life and to new family and new hope and adoption into the kingdom of God. And so there is this true understanding of what you're leaving behind and what you're choosing. And I think, honestly, we've done church And I don't think we've necessarily done adoption. Um, I don't think we've done dying and resurrecting in our church in America all that well. Um, And so I think basically baptism has completely lost its purpose. We do not understand the picture that is presented. Um, You know, I think a lot of us attend church and think we're fine with God. We, you know, try to maybe make the good outweigh the bad and think he's going to be pleased with that, and that's going to be good enough. Um, And if you can hear anything from me, I want you to hear that that is not the message of Scripture. The message of Scripture is that we are dead in our transgressions and sins. We are powerless in our sin apart from Christ. It is only in Christ's death and resurrection that we have hope of eternity with Jesus, that we have any certainty and assurance of salvation whatsoever. It is not about our works. Otherwise, we'd boast. We'd be all about what we can do. And it's not about that. It is purely about what Jesus did when he died and rose again. That is the gospel. That's the heart of it. That's it. It's all about what Jesus did. And it's about where we stand with that truth. You know, are we on the side that we have not come to grips with the fact that we are leaving the old life and we are following and joining a new family and a new life and a new kingdom, that we are no longer a part of this world, that we have become a part of a future kingdom that is coming. 
um, that we are a part of a new family. Uh, here's the thing. It's an identity change. It is an identity change. And I think we have a lot of lukewarm believers that are sitting in pews thinking they're fine because they're there, because they're physically present, but they've never made a choice to repent and to choose Jesus. Here's the thing. I tell my kids, what shows our true profession of faith is whether or not we are faithful to the end. It's whether we hold fast. So it's about understanding and choosing to pick up our cross and follow Jesus. Anyway, that's been Zechariah and um, kind of a presentation on the gospel. So hopefully you guys, um, if you have a non-Christian and you want to share the gospel with them, my encouragement would be seize the day because we are living in times where we could see some Bible prophecy coming coming true before our eyes. Anyway, thanks for joining me today. Um, Yeah, and I'll see you next time for the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi. Thanks for listening today. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. We'd love to hear from you, so find us on Facebook and Instagram at Open the Word Podcast or send us an email to openthewordpodcast at gmail.com. Is it time for you to plan a day trip with your peeps? Come and stay a while at Shia Market in Berlin. There is something for everyone, no matter what your taste or style may be. Visit the Village Gift Barn for your custom floral arrangements and timeless accessories for your home. Stroll upstairs to Shia Style Boutique for your perfect outfit, everything from accessories to shoes. Be inspired at country gatherings with decor from Modern Farmhouse to transitional design. Then meander through the gardens for a large selection of houseplants. And last but not least, order your perfect cup of brew at the Buggy Brew Coffee Company. End your day by gathering to relax in our courtyard. You will leave feeling connected and refreshed.